at Jesus' crucifixion and death. Today we're going to look at his uh, burial, his resurrection, and then his final words to his disciples. We're going to start in verse 55. Many women were there, that's at the crucifixion, watching from a distance. They'd followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and Mary the, of, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. As evening approached, so this is on Friday night, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and placed it in his own new tomb that he cut out of rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. On the next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people he's been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. After the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, so this is Sunday now, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the woman, don't be afraid for I know that you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He's not here. He is risen just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples he's raised from the dead. He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Don't be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, you are to say, his disciples came during the night and stole him while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. So... Um, just a brief recap, so Joseph of Arimathea was a part of the Sanhedrin, that was a Jewish ruling body, we don't know if he was part of the group that um, convicted Jesus or not, he was obviously a disciple of Jesus, according to John he was a secret disciple, that wasn't anything that was public, so he goes to Pilate, asks for Jesus' body, anyone who was crucified would have been thrown in a hole, and Joseph says, no, I want his body, Pilate gives him, uh, gives this body to Joseph, and he puts him in a tomb, and it would have looked something like this. It's not a hole in the ground uh, like we would have thought of. It's more like a cave, and you would have this rock that's a disc. There's a little trough in front of the opening. The rock would have been rolled in front of that opening to seal the tomb. One person probably could have moved the rock into place. It'd take a lot of guys to move it out of place because they'd have to roll it back up this incline. So that's where Jesus is, and these women, they see him, be, they see him crucified, then they see Joseph put him in his tomb. And so they're coming back on Sunday, according to Mark, to anoint his body with spices. That's just part of this burial ritual, um, Jewish burial ritual. In the meantime, the religious leaders go to Pilate, he's the governor, and they say, hey, listen, he said he was going to 
come back to life in three days. That's in Matthew 16, 21. He says that. He predicts his resurrection. And that's going to be the, the worst thing that could happen is if the disciples steal the body and then say he's been raised from the dead. We, it's no good for anybody. So give us some guards. So a couple of guards stay and watch at the tomb, most likely just through Sunday, through that third day, to make sure that nobody comes and steals the body and seal the tomb. So take some wax or some soft clay and they would have put it in the gap between that stone rock and the cave. And so uh, they would have put soft clay or wax there. It would have hardened. And so then if that rock was moved, it would break the seal and everybody would know, see, it's been tampered with. So that's what's going on there. These two women come back. These two Marys come back Sunday morning. They're expecting to find a dead body because they brought spices to anoint this dead body. Burial procedure. They see the tombs open, earthquake, angel. Angel says... Everything's fine. He's gone to Galilee. Tell the disciples to meet him there. That's where Jesus said in the upper room. He said, I'm going to meet you all again in Galilee. They're leaving and they see Jesus. And he says, tell my brothers to meet me again in Galilee. Soldiers wake up from their shock, go to the religious leaders and say, hey, this is what happened. And what they say is, Here, we're going to give you a bunch of money. We're going to bribe you to not tell what really happened. And if, any, if this gets back to the governor, that's Pilate, we'll cover for you. because The soldiers should have been killed for failing in their duty. The fact that the, the grave has been disturbed, they should have been killed for that. So what, they're say, what the religious leaders say is don't worry about that. We'll cover for your boss with you. So that's kind of what's going on there in these verses. Anytime I read the resurrection story, one of the things that I think about is why, why? out of everything that we could have our faith based on, why do we pick the one thing or that, that people hear and they go, that's just, that's a fairy tale. Dead people stay dead. They don't, they don't come back. Why, why, why? We could pick the Sermon on the Mount. Everybody says that's great stuff. Let's pick a couple of miracles. Let's pick do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Everybody thinks that's a great idea. Why do we pick, or why was it chosen, that of everything Christianity could have been based on, it's this thing that when people hear it, they just start going, are you, are you, a, are you a loon? What, why is that the case? The, the resurrection vindicates and validates everything Jesus said and everything that he did. Without the resurrection, he's really, he's nothing. He's not a great teacher. He's not a miracle worker. He's not a martyr. He's not a prophet. He's none of those things. Without the resurrection, he's a crazy person because he said, I'm going to be raised from the dead. He said, I'm the son of God. He said, I'm the Messiah. I'm the Christ. I'm all of these things. And either he thought he was those things and he wasn't, and we have a place for those people, and it's called an institution, and that's where he would be. He said things that were, he just made crazy, preposterous claims, or he knew all those things weren't true, and he said him anyway, which would make him a liar. Either way, he's none of those other good labels that we give. Apart from the resurrection, Paul says we've got nothing to hang our hat on. There's no reason for us to be doing any of this if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead. And the resurrection vindicates and validates everything that he said and everything that he did. And so there's this thing where I'm going, why, are we, why do we make that the crux of everything when we know? It's like God's not dumb you know there's going to be skepticism over this claim that someone was 
raised from the dead. There have been 120 billion people who've ever lived and 119 billion, 999 million, 999,999 of them have died and stayed dead. And this one God doesn't. And so that may, and there's, there's something about that. 50 days after this first Easter, the disciples, the last time we saw them, remember, they're all running scared. They're afraid to be associated with Jesus because it means they may be arrested and who knows what's going to happen if they get arrested. So they all run away. Peter denies and everybody else deserts. So 50 days after this resurrection that we just read about, they're all in the place in Jerusalem, the place where Jesus was betrayed and arrested and tried. He was crucified right outside of Jerusalem from the very place where all this stuff happens. They start preaching that Jesus was raised from the dead. And then this church, this Christian church forms in Jerusalem. You can go back and look. It's one of the best attested facts in history. The Christian church formed in Jerusalem in the mid-30s A.D., and the basis of it was this proclamation that Jesus had been raised from the dead. And again, I go, what's going on there? There's no, no one has ever, Jew, Roman, Greek, no one ever produced a body. The tomb was empty. And so there, there have been these alternate theories that have said, how come this tomb was empty. Some people said, you know, women are not great with directions, and they probably just went to the wrong place. So they went to a tomb, and it was empty. It was just the wrong one. Again, so in Jerusalem, these apostles, these disciples are all saying Jesus was raised from the dead. The Jewish religious leaders had every motivation to get them to be quiet. All they had to do was go to the right tomb, roll the stone away, and there his body would be. Jewish burial practices, he would have been dumped in the or placed in the front of this cave for a year while he decomposed. And then when he was done decomposing, they were taking the bones, put them in a box, and put them in, in, a, in the wall of the cave. That's why the women would have brought all these spices, is to cover the smell of decomposition. Uh, pretty picture. So they could have just rolled the stone away and said, see, here he is. Here's the body. Everybody knew who Joseph of Arimathea was. He was one of the 70 most prominent Jews in Jerusalem at the time. They could have found the tomb and done that, but they didn't. Some people say Jesus didn't really die. It's called the swoon theory. He just fainted. The Journal of the American Medical Association went through the evidence in the Gospels and said he was dead. D-E-A-D, dead, dead, dead. No way you lived through that. Somehow, let's say the Roman guards were wrong. He wasn't really dead. They throw him into the tomb. You saw that rock. He's going to move that from the inside after being flogged and being crucified, somehow he's going to roll that thing away up a hill and then overcome two Roman guards? That would be impressive. Nobody, there's there's, no, there's no, no record. This is all public. There's no record of him appearing bruised and beat up and his back flayed open. There's no record of any of that. We see the resurrection appearances. The disciples say, you're the Lord of life, not you look like death. The body was stolen. Who takes it? The disciples overcome the guards, move the rock, bring the body out. Here's a slide of what happens to the disciples. So they, they do this. And then in Jerusalem, these guys who were scared to death to be associated with Jesus suddenly become so bold that they proclaim in the face of the threat of imprisonment, torture, and death, that Jesus was raised from the dead. 
They get other people to believe that lie that they know to be a lie. They're heretics because they're pointing people away from God. And then that's what they experience towards the end of their life, all because they say Jesus was raised from the dead. The character of somebody who would steal a body and then lie about it and lead other people astray, normally those guys aren't the kind of guys who when their lives are on the line, continue to believe the lie. One of them is going to say, hey, just joking. We took the body. He's not really dead. There's no motivation for the disciples to steal. It doesn't make sense for anyone else to steal the body. Nobody, And there's no motivation for the disciples to. Their picture, their mind, Jesus died, therefore he's not the Christ. Therefore he's not the Messiah, because cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. That's Deuteronomy. So in their mind, the fact that Jesus was crucified means he wasn't who he said he was. He wasn't this one who they thought he was. So there's no motivation for them to pretend otherwise. The assumption is they were, they were wrong about him. They're still trying to sort out this three years of life with him. But the assumption is he wasn't the Messiah or God would not have allowed him to die. So again, there's no motivation for them to then steal the body to create a religion out of that. Christianity's nothing. It doesn't exist at that point. It's not the big, now it's the biggest religion in the world. So, you know, there's, you could say, well, they, something was done to continue the hoax. But at that point, it literally doesn't exist. They're the ones that started the ball rolling. No motivation for them. At some point, and this can be difficult, the resurrection becomes the most likely explanation for what happened. And again, out of the 120 billion people who live, there's this one who fits in a different category who dies and comes back to life. And so what it makes me say is, well, maybe, there, maybe he did. There's some, maybe there is something to that. And that explains everything that we know. We know he was crucified. There are non-Christian sources that will tell you that. We know where he was buried. We know the tomb is empty. And we know that the Christian church started when it started in Jerusalem in the mid-30s A.D. with people saying it's because Jesus rose from the dead. All of those things are facts. And so to me, the, the best explanation is, well, I guess he was resurrected. If you're skeptical or if you love someone who's skeptical, many of you love people who are skeptical. I encourage you with a couple of things. When you look at that, you, what are you going to do with the resurrection? You can be like the religious leaders and you can just deny that it ever happened. That's what they said. I was thinking about that. So I'm a religious leader. I say I love God and I'm trying to help all of us stay connected, stay on track with him. These Roman soldiers come and tell me, hey, an angel showed up. There was an earthquake. The stone rolled away and he came out alive. That's what I hear. My response as a religious leader is, here's some money, pretend it never happened. How committed are you to your viewpoint? How committed, stubborn are you in your view of God and life that you won't allow the fact that someone came back from the dead to shake your belief? And he didn't just come back to from the dead. He predicted that he would. They knew that he said he would come back. That's the reason they placed the guard there. They knew he said, in three days, I'm getting up again. Now, you tell me, if I told you I'm going to die and in three days I'm coming back, if I did that, 
what, would you think something different of me? The, the room would be full for sure next Sunday. At a minimum. People would want to know. That, that's not normal. If I'm someone who is saying, religious leader, I want truth, I'm, I'm, I love God, and I want all of us to stay connected to him, and this guy who says, I'm going to die in this way and then come back in three days, and he does, and I'm not willing at that point to say, you know, I might have made a mistake about him. How committed are you? It's stubborn at that point. If you love someone who is skeptical, that may be where they are. If you're skeptical, that may be where you are. And I would say in the most polite and kind way, is there any room for you to say, out of the 120 billion people who've ever lived, is there, if there's this one guy who called his own shot, who said, I'm going to die and I'm coming back in three days, and he does, can you, can you make room in your mind that maybe there's something special about him? Maybe there's something about him that you need to reconsider. Would you at least be willing to do that? Let me move you in the direction of the women and the 11 disciples. Their reaction is mixed. It says the women were afraid and yet full of joy. The disciples worshipped, but some doubted. That's, they were hesitant. That's what that word doubt means. There's this, there's this mixture. They see him, and so their response again is to worship, and yet they're confused about what's going on. It doesn't have to be an all or nothing thing for you initially if you're skeptical or if you love someone who is. Are there parts of who Jesus is that you can affirm and grab onto right now? Are there parts that you can worship? Are there parts that you can say, yes, I, I, I believe this is true about him. There are these parts I don't get. There are these parts I'm confused about or there are these parts that are difficult for me. I get that he's the son of God. What's difficult for me is that he's the only way. It's hard for me to think about that. Okay, well, let's, let's start with what you're willing to give him, what you're willing to concede, what you say, yes, this is, there's truth here. Can you start with that and then move beyond, say, these are the areas where I'm struggling. God, I need your help with them. In the Gospel of John, what does he say to Thomas? Thomas says, listen, I don't believe y'all. You said he came back. I'm not going to believe it till what? I put my fingers in the holes. And what does Jesus do when he shows up? says, put your fingers in the holes. Here, see. I want, you to t I want you to touch and know. He'll do the same thing with our honest skepticism, with our honest hesitation, with our honest doubt. If you're willing to bring that before him, if you can encourage those you love who are skeptical to bring those things before him, it gives him something to work with. If on some level they can say, yes, I believe he taught things that were true. On some level, if they can say, even at a minimum, yes, I believe he existed. Then let's go with the fact that he's real. And let's hang on that. And then let's begin to look at these areas where you're doubting. Let's look at these areas where you're resistant. Some of you are Christians. You said yes to following him. And there's still this skepticism or this, there's this hesitation, better word than skepticism. There's this hesitation in your heart. God's disappointed you on some level. There, there are parts of his character that you're like, I don't, I'm just going to pretend that does, that's not there. You read parts of the Bible and you just say, I, you skip Judges and Joshua because you don't like it. Too much killing. My God wouldn't do that or whatever those pictures are for you. Would you be willing to bring those hesitations before him? God, this is who I'm, I'm worshiping this part of you that I know and that I love, and there's this part that I don't understand. And, I'm, and rather than just 
pretending it doesn't exist, I'm going to bring it before you and ask you to help me with it. It's what Thomas did, and Jesus responded. I want to encourage you, again, if you're skeptical on some level or if you love someone who is, encourage them in those baby steps. They don't have to jump all the way off the first time. You can, be, you can worship and still hesitate. You can be full of joy and still have some fear as well. It's not where we want to stay, but it's a great place to start. It's way better than denying that he ever, it's way better than denying. It's way better than just pretending, closing our eyes, here, let me just pay you off and we'll pretend this whole thing never happened. Just putting your head in the sand. Again, if he really did come back from the dead, I, I, I grant you that does, that's not normal at all. That's what makes it so special is because it's not. And so it makes me go, what does that mean about this man? If out of everyone who's ever lived, he's in a category by himself. Verse 16, then the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. There's that phrase. Jesus came to them. He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Last words, particularly when you have time to plan them. They say something. Here's some, Jesse will run through. These are some famous last words. You can tell something about the heart of the person who says them based on their words. That's Barnum and Bailey. That's him. You can see what he cares about. Mother Teresa, what does she care about? Jack Daniel, what does he care about? Elvis, that's Hilton of Hilton Hotels and Paris Hilton's dad. So you can decide what his greatest contribution to society was. Leave the shower curtain on the inside of the tub. Last words, Jesus' last words were this. Out of everything he could have said to the disciples, I want you to be nice to your siblings, I want you to love your mama, I want you to pay more attention to God. Out of everything he could have said, this is what he goes with. Go and make disciples. That's a command, both of those words. Go and make disciples. Go is our posture, make disciples is our aim or our goal. And both of those words are imperatives. Both of those words are commands that he gives to us. The way we make disciples is baptizing and teaching them to obey. So if you're looking at it kind of grammatically, go and make disciples, that's the command. Baptizing and teaching, that's how we make disciples. We're going to spend the next few weeks looking at this. Just for today, I want to hit the words really briefly. This idea of going, does that mean you have to be a long-term missionary? Absolutely not. Does it mean that you should have a posture that says, I initiate? Absolutely. It's not field of dreams, build it, and they will come. This is Jesus says in John 20, 21, as I was sent, so I am sending you. And again, we're going to look over the next three few weeks about how Jesus was sent and what the implications of that are for us. For now, the fact that he was sent and he sends us is enough. On one level, I would say like when it comes to short-term mission trips, you don't need to hear God because you already did. He said go. So go. You're not going to mess up. You're not going to go on a mission trip and God's going to say that wasn't where I sent you and you're going to get typhoid or something like that. It's not how it works. He says go. The picture there is for everybody everywhere to have an opportunity to respond to the gospel. And the only way they're going to know is if we tell them. That's Romans 10. 
They know because someone told them. Every one of us sitting in this room who is a Christian is a Christian because somebody shared the gospel with us. At some point, somebody said to you, hey, you're a sinner. You've, you've, you've got this debt that you can't pay. Jesus paid it for you. If you put your trust and your faith in him, it will be taken care of and you can be reconciled to God. Somebody said that to you at some point and you said, I'm in. That's how it works for all of us. And the same thing is true moving forward. That's why we have to go because without the going, there is no telling. Both of those things are, go hand in hand. Make disciples. That's followers of Jesus. It's what he's looking for from us. We make disciples. We make followers of him. I think it's Dallas Willard in his book, um, The Divine Conspiracy. He says, uh, we want to live our life like Jesus would live his life if he was us. I want to live my life like Jesus would live my life as he, if he was me. It's what it means to be a follower or a disciple of Christ. How do, I, how do we make disciples? We baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Baptism is a public declaration. It's a public affirmation of your faith, of this commitment that you've made internally. You're not saved through baptism, but there's a pretty high level of expectation here that you will be baptized. If you're a Christian and you haven't yet been baptized, I would say, come on, it's, it's time. Now is the time. There's no reason for you to continue to delay and to wait because the picture here is that's part of what that's part of the plan for making you a disciple is you being baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Here at Stonebridge, we, we'll put you over here in a little baby pool and we'll dump water on you. Other places, you'll get dunked in a river or dunked in a tank or they'll sprinkle stuff on your head. The mode doesn't matter. What matters is you publicly saying, I'm identifying with him. My primary allegiance and my primary loyalty, my primary family is, with, is, is his and him. That's where... I get my identity fundamentally. That's, what bab- that's all of the things that you're saying when you're baptized. You're saying, I'm dead to this way of life. I'm dead to this identity apart from Christ, and I'm alive to this one. I'm a new creation in him. And so everything about me has changed. Some of you who live in the county, you'll, all of you who live in the county, will have a chance to vote on Tuesday. If you live in Marietta, we've got a lot of things that we're trying to decide and the other Cities, y'all have some things you're trying to decide as well. One of the things, if you're baptized, it plays out in everything. Just something as simple as voting. My first question when I go into the voting booth on Tuesday is not, does this raise my taxes? It's not, is this good for business? It's not, is this good for the environment? It's not, is this good for my family? It's not, is he a Democrat or Republican? Those, all of those things are far down the list. The first question on my list, because I've been baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is, does this, voting yes for this, does that reflect the values of the kingdom? Voting no for this, does that reflect the values of the kingdom? And voting for this person, is this someone who is going to further God's purposes in our community? I might not know their spiritual history from what I can tell. Is voting for this person, are they someone who's going to promote God's agenda? Whether they're a Christian or not. Are they for the values of the kingdom of God? That's my first question. That's what it means to be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. My personal concerns become secondary. His concerns become primary. I'm concerned above all else with his agenda being pursued and promoted even at the expense of my own. 
whatever that means for me, whether that's what that means for my wallet or what it means for my safety or what if it means for my comfort or my convenience or any of those things, all of that becomes secondary. Why? Because I've been baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so my primary identity is with him. I'm just passing through here. Hebrews 11. I'm a stranger. I'm an alien. I'm a foreigner in this land. I'm absolutely committed to it. That's Jeremiah 29, 4 through 7. 100% I'm committed to this place, but recognizing that I don't get my values from this place. My values come from somewhere else. And so I'm looking up for my values and trying to see those things lived out here. That's what it means to be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's so much beyond getting wet. It's a public declaration that you've been adopted into a new family, that you have a new identity, and that your allegiance is no longer with yourself, it's with Jesus. That's what we're doing when we're making disciples. We're helping walk people to that point where they can say yes to that. Here it's easy to be baptized. You just got to bring a change of clothes. There are a lot of cultures where it's not so easy. When you're baptized, that means you're cut off from your family. When you're baptized, it means you may get stoned as soon as you come up out of the lake. It's easy for us, but it's no less significant for us, the declaration that we're making in that moment. And then we teach them to obey. We don't just give people information. We don't give them a list of rules and say, here, go follow these. Every one of you, you've learned something. You've learned how to hit a golf ball, or you've learned how to change the oil in your car, you've learned how to draw, you've learned something that requires the use of your hands or your feet. You've learned some type of skill. And most likely, the way you learn that is because somebody showed you how to do it. You probably didn't just read a book and go out and do it the first time. Somebody said, hey, let me show you how to hit a driver. Somebody said, hey, here's how you change an alternator, or here's how you color with paint with watercolors, or whatever it is. Here's how you sew. Whatever it is you've learned, most likely someone has showed you how. It's an apprenticeship model. That's what Jesus says. He says, what? Come and follow me. That's the invitation to the disciples and to us. When you're making disciples, you're not just giving them a book saying, here, read it. Tell me what you think. What you're saying is, here, come live life with me. I'm going to show you what it looks like to obey the teachings of Jesus as a 38-year-old guy who lives in Marietta with four kids. Let me show you what that looks like for me. We'll figure out together what does it look like to forgive? What does it look like to be merciful? What does it look like to give? What does it look like to walk the extra mile? What does it look like to turn the other cheek? I want to show you how to obey those things. There's a relational component there to making disciples. That's the expectation. That's what Jesus did. It took him three years to make 12 disciples. It's going to take us some time. There's an investment piece there. We want to baptize them, bring them to the place where they can make this initial commitment. And then we want to teach them to obey. Not just teach them, teach them to obey. Show them, hey, this is what, the, this is what life looks like following him. Again, we're going to spend the next few weeks looking at this. This is what I want you to do to, today. When you hear the word go, I'm going to give you three pictures. And I want you to, I want you to pick one. I want you to think through, when you hear the word go, what do you think about? Is it this picture? Do you think globe? When you hear go, are you thinking it's the atlas, it's the map? For some reason, we can't decide the number of countries in the world. You would think that would be a set number, but apparently it's not. 
somewhere between 190 and 196 countries in the world. There's 11,000 people groups. And when Jesus says go into all nations, the word is it's people groups. He doesn't care about the little lines and the colors on the atlas. What he cares about are groups of people who have common language and common culture that need to hear the gospel. There's 11,000 of those spread out in that 190 to 196 countries. Is that, when you hear the word go, is that where your mind goes? Is it this, when you hear the word go, do you think that's Cobb County? I told the guys at night, I'm not sure why Mableton didn't make the cut as a city. It is a city, but it didn't quite make the cut there. Or is Austell in there? Yeah, we got that. So I don't know what you're thinking of. We talk all the time about these seven walls. And that might be something for you. When you hear go, you may be thinking, this is an area of influence. That area in our community, that need, the kingdom of God needs to come to that area. Absolutely does. That may be what you're thinking. When you hear go, you're not thinking, it's not an atlas. It's an office. Or it's not an atlas. It's a school. It's not an atlas, it's, it, there's, it's one of these things that really stirs your heart and you say, that's, that's where I'm being called, that's where I'm being sent. Or is it this, you may think in terms of people groups, that's just one, the hurting, that's a people group. When you hear go, do you not, is it pictures that are in your head, pictures of faces, is it adoptive parents or orphan kids or single moms or seventh grade boys and girls, or whatever, what do you, when you hear the word go, what comes to your mind? That's all I want you with today. That's your response today, is I'm going to, we're going to pray, and I just want you to grab on to the first thing that pops in your head when you hear this word go, and then we're going to start kind of working that out over the next few weeks. So y'all close your eyes, and I'm going to pray. I'm going to read this one more time. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. When you hear the word go, what pops into your head? I want you to grab onto that even if you don't love it. Those, those words, go, make disciples, baptize, and teach, they're bookended. They're sandwiched between this declaration of authority. All authority has been given to Jesus. Psalm 24.1 says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and everyone who lives in it. It's all his. And so you can, whatever came into your mind, you can go confidently into that place because it's got, he owns it. The one who owns it is sending you there. You're not trespassing. Every square inch of this globe and every person on this earth is his. And so whatever came into your mind when he said go, recognize the one who has the authority, who owns all of those things, is the one sending you. So you have permission to be there. On the back side of that, there's a promise. There's a declaration of authority and then there's a promise of his presence. I'll be with you. He doesn't send us out on our own. Psalm 139, where can I flee from the presence of God? Where can I go where he is not? And the answer is nowhere. He's everywhere. 
even places that are hostile to him, he is there. He can't be excluded from anywhere, even when he, where he, places where he's unwanted, he still remains. So if you're thinking about whatever that place or that picture was, those people in your head, and you're going, I can't, I just know. Recognize he's not sending you there on your own. His promise is to be with you in the midst of that. We read in Romans that nothing can separate us from his love. Jesus says in John, no one can be snatched from his hand. He says he's going to be with you. You can count on that. If you're able to pray this prayer, then I want you to do so in your heart, just as I pray. If you're not ready, that's okay. God, I want to be a sent one. I want to live my life the way you would live it if you were me. I want to have eyes to see the people in my daily experience who are desperate for the gospel. Even as I try to figure out what that looks like, like the 11, I want to worship even as I'm hesitating. I don't want to pull back. I want to press forward. I want to know the reality of being sent even as you were sent. As scary as it is, I want to make myself available to you to go wherever it is that you want to call me and to connect with whoever it is you want me to connect with. I don't want to let my fear my sense of inadequacy, my schedule. I don't want any of those things to stand in the way of following these final words that you gave to go and make disciples. God, I want to be fruitful. You said that the seed in good ground would produce 30 and 60 and 100 times what was sown. And I pray that would be true in my life. Not for my glory, but for yours. In Jesus' name, amen. This is how we're going to close. We'll have uh, Bo's going to come up and lead us in one last song. We'll have ministry teams up in the front. We'll pray with you about anything that you have going on, a couple of things specifically. That, some of that that we talked about initially, this, this kind of skepticism, if that's you, or if you love someone who you would say is skeptical, we would love to pray with you that God would break into their life. He would, he would do the convincing. That's, in John, we read that's the job of the Holy Spirit. He convicts. We don't. He convicts of sin and guilt and righteousness. And so we, we want to pray that God would do that in the lives and the hearts and the minds of our loved ones who are not quite ready to say yes yet. If it's you and you would say, I'm skeptical. I'm not willing to sign on the dotted line right now. I want to, but I'm willing to move forward, we would love the chance to pray with you this morning. And maybe what you heard when I said go is freaking you out a little bit. We want to pray with you about that. We're not going to try to talk you into or out of anything. We're just going to pray that God would kind of confirm and seal the words that he's giving you and that you would know how to move forward in obedience. So you guys can stand. Ministry teams, if y'all would come forward.
but will dismiss us when we're done.